Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash amberlive. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There is so much more to Amber Live than just the amazing interviews that drag queen Amber LeMay does each week. We have hundreds of interviews and comedy sketches online already, and you can watch them all on YouTube. But in the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. Hello, hello, hello. It's time for more of our Charles Bush interview. So let's start it right now. We've covered a lot of ground with Charles Bush, but there is so much more to his life to talk about, and I can't wait to get to it. Charles, come back in. All right. This so is your life. About <laughs> oh, Ralph Edwards. I'll be Ralph Edwards. Sure. <laughs> Google Ralph Edwards for those who don't know. You made the movies. You made that. And then um, television. You hadn't been in television before. Tell me about your first television appearance. Um, well, I haven't done that much, to be honest with you. Um, uh well, you know, I was a regular for two seasons on this, that wonderful HBO series, Oz. And that, yes. Yes. Now it's very exciting. They, they, again, that I, I, I didn't have to audition or anything. It, it was, um, you know, because I, 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 I have not pursued an outside acting career, you know, and I think I was a big fan of that show. And I was talking to, to Jeff Melnick, my great manager. He would just, you know, he, I miss him so much, you know, and he, uh, we were together 30 years and he wow. passed away and about a year ago. And, uh, I just, I just miss him so much. I mean, he, he thought more of me than I do, you know, and, and it's very rare to have <laughs> representative that actually you know, has, I would be embarrassed sometimes that he would carry on about my importance. That was far more than, than it is. And, you know, but how, how nice to actually have somebody as that kind of, Believe in you. Anyway, I was on the phone with Jeff just saying how much I was a fan of the TV show Oz. And I wasn't serious. I, I just was, you know, just, I said, oh, boy, it'd be cool to be on a show like that. Well, when we got off the phone, he, he you know, contacted the casting office and, and they thought it was a funny idea. And, um, and next thing I knew, they, you know, they shot in New York, actually, and uh, just a few blocks from where I live, actually. But um, so it was a point was made for me to meet Tom Fontana, the producer, creator of the show. And he, um, he, we had a friend in common. He had been to some of my plays. So it wasn't like I was totally unknown to him. And he said, I'd love to be on the show. Who would you like to play? And I, I said, well, I, I said, about the least street person there is. I said, but I could play because, you know, it was a gritty, you know, violent yeah. show. I said, I could play somebody who, who's uh, deceptively fragile, but is really a lethal killer underneath. And so let's, I'll work on it. And I didn't think I'd ever hear from him again. A few months later, you know, I got a call. What's your availability on these dates to film? So, oh, my God. And um, he, he, he created a character for me, Nat Ginsburg, who was exactly the character I had described. And um, I had some really fun episodes. And I was on... Um, Two seasons, and then they they killed me off. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you in the shower with Chris Maloney? 
No, but the funny thing, I am responsible for one of his more erotic scenes that uh, it was my first episode and I got the script. And the thing is, when you when you don't pursue a traditional career, it gives you a certain kind of freedom of not being afraid of burning bridges. You know, if I had been just kind of a regular actor, I'd, you know, I shouldn't say that there's a protocol, but I didn't really care. So I read this first script and in it, they would have occasionally these little fantasy sequences about the different inmates. And in this one, it said that Nat appears in a, in a woman's bra and panties. And, and it just bugged me. I kept thinking about that, but they don't know. They, the audience hasn't seen me before. So they, will they know that that's, you know, the fantasy sequence or that's the first time they're going to be introduced to me. I don't know. I, I just didn't want to do it. And so, you know, any other actor was all like just kept their mouth shut, but I got, I don't know. I just told Tom Fontana. <laughs> so I, I don't want to do it. <laughs> it was like Fanny Bryce with, you know, Ziegfeld. <laughs> and uh, I said, I said, cause I was a fan of the show. I said, it'd be, you know, having me, you know, it's so androgynous being in the bra and panties means nothing. I said, but Chris Maloney, having a big butch sexy guy, having him like dressed like that would be kind of, you know, kind of perverse. And, and so they did it with him and it was, and he got into it, you know, because he was just, you know, he was just you know, game for anything. Yeah. <laughs> and then later, you know, I did work with him. Uh, we did, uh, we had, had not done Die Mommy Die on stage in New York yet. And so we did a big actors fund one night benefit of it with a great cast we got chris maloney to play jason priestley's role so i got to do it, you know. so he's a great guy great guy so yes we did that yeah but um yeah and not hard to look at either he's, he's nice to look at yep yep yeah and just very very free with his you know body and very comfortable with himself yeah so we uh and later we did um on the basis of that <clears throat> one night event we did a full off-Broadway production of Die, Mommy, Die here in New York, which was a lot of fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, what other television shows have you appeared in? <clears throat> I don't, I, I'm not sure. Have I really done the other? Oh, oh okay. yes. I was, um, oh, there was a thing called L Lipstick Jungle that I was asked to, to be on that I did an episode of. Uh, Law and Order? Have you been on any of the Law no, and Orders? No, You're Lately, the only New York actor who's never been in yeah, the Law and Order. Yeah. Lately, it's funny. Uh, during this pandemic, for some reason, I, I've, I've been getting these offers, not but not for the role. They want me to put myself on tape for it. It's a little different. And um, I, don't, I don't know. They're, they're pretty humiliating parts. <laughs> it seems like each part they, they want me to play is somebody who's impaled you know, you know, through their, their rectum or something. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, some like really grotesque thing on, you know, one of these, these procedural shows and not, not low and order. Uh, and so I was saying that that's all right. Uh, I did uh, that wonderful series, um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. They, um, they, they um, contacted me about uh, putting myself on tape for a, a part of an older homosexual and uh, and so I I thought well I should have the experience all my actor friends are putting themselves on tape, you know I should just have the experience see what it's like and oh I don't know it, it just since I never did it before and I'm not accustomed to auditioning 
I, it just turned into a whole, you know, Wagnerian uh, opera involving my friend Kathy and and uh, my friend Ashley. And I, oh, I was just going through all sorts of drama. And uh, we have to do a retake. We have to redo it again. It's terrible. And, oh, I shouldn't do this at all. And what? Who am I kidding? And I'm not going to get this thing. This is ridiculous. Anyway, we did it. And I did not get the part. I was told that I really wasn't believable as a, as an uh, <laughs> older homosexual, uh, and uh, ageist. <laughs> I wasn't believable. So I didn't think I didn't, frankly I didn't think I really was quite right either for the part, you know. But that they ended up casting um, John Waters in it, who was much more <laughs> much more suited for the for the part of this elegant older, man, wise fellow. But the final twist is that. Months later, a couple months later, I was looking out my window and I saw the trucks and lights for because they shoot a lot of things in, in my neighbor's very picturesque. And I realized they're shooting the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I um, looking across the street and I see John Waters. They're shooting my scene. <laughs> talking about you know, sticking a knife deep in your back. I could, I mean, the odds really. Amber, the odds that, that you lose the part and that you see them shooting the scene outside your apartment. <laughs> Cruel. Uh, Cruel. I think I, I, that you should have gone out and offered something to them. <laughs> I just dumped water on their heads. <laughs> yeah. anyway. Let's jump ahead a few years up to the tale of the allergist wife. That's mainstream. How did you go to mainstream theater like that? Um... Well, there's a, a series of, of good things. Because um, I wasn't, you know, that really wasn't my, my great dream. I, you know, I've really enjoyed my career, you know, and, and writing these plays and starring in them. And, you know, um, uh, and, you know, we've transferred a number of them to nice theaters. You know, it's not like, you know, my career is all just performing for pinheads and carny folk. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> been legit for a while, but I, I just didn't really, you know, I, you know, I didn't really think like the big goal was to be in a Broadway house. But then um, I, um, I wrote the book to a, a musical called The Green Heart, and it was um, produced by Manhattan Theater Club, which is one of the top nonprofit theaters in, in the country but and, and and here in new york city and and we uh ken was directing that and i really hit it off with um lynn meadow who's the artistic director of that theater and when we uh opened and it was not you know really not big success but lynn said oh i'd love to produce your next play whatever that is and they're a pretty square conservative th you know theater they're, they're, they're listening up now but um I thought, well, um, I see what kind of play could I write for them? And I had this character that I had performed in a solo show called Miriam Passman, who was this very raging New York, you know, lady who was kind of a, had all sorts of cultural aspirations. And uh, I thought she'd be a fun character to write a play around. And that would really be right for Manhattan Theater Club's, you know, audience. It, it, she is their audience. And it might be fun for them to see themselves you know on on stage so i wrote the play and uh, over the course of a year and gave it to lynn and she loved it and and said let's um do a reading right away and who would you picture playing the lead and 
And I thought it would be really good for Linda Lavin, be really right for it. And she did the reading and then it, it was all just, you know, kind of happened. And then we opened off, we opened at Manhattan Theater Club with this great cast, including Michelle Lee and Tony Roberts. And, um, and then it was very well received. And so right away there were plans to transfer it to Broadway, but that was not, you know, I kind of took one thing at a time. What, once it was at Manhattan Theater Club, though, I have to say, I, my dream, I thought, oh, well, this should transfer. You know, the, uh, you know it's that kind of play. And, um, and so then uh, Daryl Roth and a couple of the producers came in and, and uh, moved it to the uh, Barrymore Theater, you know, where Streetcar Named Desire played and Raisin in the Sun. And um, it was just, you know, absolute thrilling thing. I mean, I, I, I hadn't anticipated it. once it was there. I believe me, I, I appreciated it. it. It was just. On yeah. opening night, did you think I finally made it or was it just another gig or was it just uh, another step in your career? Well, I, to be honest, I, it, it, it kind of bugged me a little bit. I mean, I, it was, it was, so, it was absolutely thrilling and, and, you know, just everybody in the world should have a Broadway hit. I mean, it's just, it's the most <laughs> extraordinary. I mean, it's just the most extraordinary thing. It's, it's fabulous. Um, that said, it, it did bug me a little bit, though, when, 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 when people meaning well would say to me, um, oh, isn't it great that you're finally mainstream? Because it, it, it implied, but it, maybe that's just my, you know, where I was coming right. from. It, it implied that somehow everything I'd been doing for the previous 20 years was somehow not quite legit when you know there were plays that ran a long time and played it at you know prestigious theaters and you know so uh i that, that kind of bugged me but then i, I got over it <laughs> i got over it and you know when the checks started coming in i i got over it and, and, <laughs> and it ran about two years it's um i believe it's it, i think it's still it's like the longest running comedy broadway comedy of the past 25 years of course, wow. it's one of the only Broadway comedies of the past 25 years. So, but I, I own it. So, <laughs> Neil, yeah. Neil Simon hasn't written one for a while. So. Oh, no, no. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, I got the At, Tony nomination. But that wasn't your last uh, venture into Broadway. Um, you, you wrote the book for Taboo, the, the musical about Boy George. Yeah. <laughs> How did that come about? Well, I've had the experience. I've had two Broadway experiences. Uh, I've had the experience of having a hit show and I've had the experience of having a notorious flop. And so both, both it's, it's necessary. Uh, well, Taboo, uh, Rosie O'Donnell was yep. the producer. She had, she had uh, finished her TV show and she uh, had gone to London and she'd seen this production of Taboo, which was uh, the score was by Boy George and it was about his youth, his early days. In the, the, this, there was a movement in London called the New Romantics that he came out of. It was very similar to my experience in the East Village. Uh, and so this show was about the young boy, George, and also this fascinating performance artist, designer named Lee Bowery. And it was kind of about the two of them. Uh, and... Um, and when when Rosie went to see it, George had got had replaced the actor playing Lee Bowery, and so he so he played that part, 
when she's the night she was there. And a young actor named Ewan Morton played the young boy George. And she, Rosie, just flipped over the show. And, and it was done in, in, in this kind of slightly rough-edged kind of venue, venue uh, club. And she flipped over it, and she decided that she wanted to produce it on Broadway. And she would be the sole, sole producer, sole investor, because she believed it, and that's what she wanted to do. And um, so but she didn't care for the book very much. And, and she, had, she had been a big fan of The Allergist Wife and all of our various ladies, Linda Lavin and um, Michelle Lee and Valerie Harper, who replaced Linda. They'd all been on her TV show. So she, so she kind of had me in mind. And, and I guess it made sense that as a drag performer and having been this kind of through the, the whole East Village scene, but also having kind of cred as a Broadway writer, that I would be a very good, you know, idea for to write a new book for Taboo. Uh, when I met with her, I, I didn't think it was a good idea. I just the little I know about Broadway musicals is that it would seem that that the music and the book are so intertwined that that you can't sort of write a brand new book, whole new storyline for an existing score. But that you know, Rosie and. and it, She's a big personality. I'm really crazy about her. And, and she um, she wanted me. And I think she could sense that I was kind of pulling back. But she said, okay, look, why don't you just fly with me to London this weekend <laughs> and and we'll see the show. And I thought, I'll go. It'll just be a, good, a funny story for me to tell everybody about my weekend in London with Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie, <laughs> you know, that was kind of, you know, first class. So So we went and I saw the show and... And, you know, I, I sort of saw what she meant. And I, I thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe all the people who loved Boy George in the 80s, now they're middle-aged. And that's the Broadway ticket buyers. Maybe she's on, you know, Rosie's kind of canny, you know. She, maybe she knows. So I, I it's okay. And, and she's uh, my old manager. He said she was the best person in the world to... Um, to negotiate with she gives you what you think you're worth and and the check arrives on time there was no packing so so you know i did but then it was it was something of a nightmare i um but you know there are story legendary stories of broadway musicals and how you know people hardly survive it and i i, I thought i was going to stroke i really didn't think i literally was going to survive it um and just the mistake she made in a sense was that Broadway musicals generally go out of, they're tried out somewhere first. There's production out of town or, and then they see it there and then decide to go to Broadway and, or, or in the old days, and it still happens a bit, you preview in Boston or Philadelphia and, and have that experience of seeing the whole show. And then, and then you're quickly doing changes. Well, she, didn't really couldn't spend that that much i mean she spent 10 million dollars but to do that would have even been more so we opened cold in new york you know with just all the vultures ready to pounce online and um so it just um it needed it, you know needed a lot of work and and you know and, and there were just many problems and you know um so i you know we did the best we could and and yet you know and so it, you know the the critics just were 
just vicious about Rosie. I, it is so unfair. Fair. The very same, the same theater critics that had written all sorts of think pieces for years about how, how it's just terrible that on Broadway every a musical has thirty, you know, uh, thirty producers who just write checks and and all that. And here, you know, and they, you know they bemoan the old days when there would be you know one producer, you know, or, or people who believed in their own properties. Well, here they had Rosie, the sole producer and the sole investor, but then they used that against her. That you know, and and I guess you know, in her enthusiasm, she's an uncensored personality. She would just you know say to everybody, "Oh, it's going to be a huge hit. We're going to win all the Tonys." And I'd say to her, "I said, don't you think they're going to you know use that against you?" And so I can't help it. That's the way I feel. I love it. And in fact, you know, they just were ready to ready to attack her. And uh, it was really unfair because I, mean, I, I thought the show was something of a mess, to be quite honest with you. But other people, sh shockingly, I mean, it, it had this cult following. People would see it over and over, and dress up like the characters. And, and then, you know, like, Stephen Sondheim came to the show. And, you know, I knew him a bit. You know, he was very encouraging to me, like he was to a lot of younger people. And I saw him at the theater afterwards, and and he said, "Oh, I really loved it." And I said, "What?" <laughs> and because I, I thought it was kind of a big mess, and he he said, "Oh, I got I was very moved." And he said, "I I, I wept a little." I said, "What for the future of the American musical?" And he said, no, he said it was about something, and he said it was music that wouldn't really be my interest, but it was very melodic and yeah. And then, oh, other people too, Tony Kushner and um, uh, Susan Stroman. I mean, these really like heavyweight people all loved it. Yeah. I got that. Whatever. Okay. Okay. They, you know, I, I don't see it, but, you know, because, you know, when you're involved in something, either, you know, it's, yeah, you know, sometimes you just can't get past the nightmare of the, what went on, you know, backstage or, Whatever, you know, so, so you had to have met Boy George and, and probably worked with him a little bit. Yeah. What what do you call him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like bad mouthing anybody. However, no, uh, I don't know. I, I guess he's got his good, good points. You know, music. Oh no, I mean, what if you? How do you? How, how did you address him? George, George. How did you address him? I'm George. Isn't it George? George. Okay. Well, his name is George, George O'Dowd. You know, and and. Um, yeah, nobody calls him boy. You know, it's just George. It, it was kind of funny though. First time I met him, well, I, I guess I met him because when I, I was he, I guess he was in the show, and I saw him when when I went with Rosie to London. Um, and then maybe it was that same weekend that we went to his house, and he had this marvelous sort of rock star mansion, you know. And uh, uh, I remember saying to him because you know he had you know many problems and drugs and all that in the past, and. And I said, you know, and he'd lived in this house for, you know, for many, many years and uh, big estate. And I, I said, I'm surprised you, you never lost the house with all your problems. He said, I was crazy, but I wasn't that crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but I remember once, so we were, we were in his house, Rosie and I, and he, he was going to do some kind of, he was going to repaint the walls of some room. And he said, oh, oh, I want to show you, got to show you the color, the color of what I'm painting the walls. And. So, so he goes on his computer and we're, you know, waiting to see, you know, the color of the paint and, and it's taken like 10 minutes to download. And I'm sitting there and I, 
I find these, I had to say, <laughs> I thought, I can't believe I'm finally in a rock star's mansion. I am so bored. I, <laughs> and he, he started laughing, you know. So I thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe this will work out. Um, but I don't know. It just does. You know, just, you know, Broadway musical, it doesn't bring out the best in people. And I, I, I did not find him a, a good collaborator. I'll leave it. I'll leave it, leave it at that. And yeah, I think right. he's surprised. You know, the show's a big flop, and you know it's been a hit in London. And so I think he he sort of blamed. You know, I can see why he sort of blamed his Broadway collaborators. You know, and, uh, I don't know. Is it, what, oh, right. We'll close out this segment on Broadway, and after this break, we'll tell catch up with what are you doing today. Okay. So we'll be right back. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast, you can use our Venmo at RJD Pro, or you can visit us at AmberLive.tv and look for the Support Amber Live button. And now, back to this incredible interview. So far, it's been a fantastic, interesting conversation with Charles Bush, and there's just a few more things I have to ask him. So, Charles, come back in. Okay. So, Charles, over the years, it seemed like you were always working on something, mm -hmm. always something new, switching gears. What did you do during the COVID lockdown? Well, my life hadn't, hadn't changed that much because, you know, I, I lead kind of a quiet life. You know, I'm a writer and I, I really happiest when I'm writing something. And, and we had just finished literally as the lockdown started. I had done a play called The Confession of Lily Dare that I was in, and we uh, and it was really my favorite role I've ever played. It was it was a homage to uh, early 1930s women's pictures about mother love, and you know, and I, I got to play a young girl from you know sort of 16 to old crone and kept aging, and it was just a wonderful experience. The great cast, and you know we. Got great reviews. It was wonderful. We our run, limited run, ended March fifth, and just the nick of time because March fifteenth, the theaters are all closed. Um, and uh, so I was kind of, get, you know, I'd worked really hard, so I was kind of exhausted. And uh, and then you know, just my life isn't that different because I, I spend so many hours writing. I'm working on a new play right now, and uh, don't know when I'll do it. But and then I I was very busy working on a book for years, a, a memoir, and now we're in the process of finding the right publisher for it. You know, so- Does I, it have I, a title? I, at the moment, it's just called Leading Lady. So, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I'm real excited about that. And, um, and then Carl Andrus, who's been my director for, mo for most everything I've done for the past 25 years. And he's just my very dear friend. And we, um, we had done a play, uh, a few years ago called the divine sister and and i want i wrote a screenplay of that and we were going to try and make a movie of it and i deluded myself into thinking it could be done very cheaply and it really couldn't be that movie would cost about 10 million dollars to to make it you know and p.s we're not going to get 10 million dollars so um so then um carl said well we should try to come up with an idea that really could be done so cheaply that's not period that could be just shot in people's apartments that kind of movie um and it could start me and and julie halston 
who's been my stage buddy for since Vampire Lesbians, but we've never really done movies together. So uh, anyway, and we met this um, wonderful young producer, Ash Christian, who's done num- did, did many, um, for a young man, he had enormous body of work of indie films. And so he, we um, pitched him this idea of this little caper movie that would be shot down here in my neighborhood in the village. And he, he loved it. And and so it's called the sixth. It's hard for me to say it. The sixth reel, and it's a, a, a contemporary caper comedy set in the world of of obsessive old movie uh, collectors and dealers. And we, we and have, we've got a clip. We've got okay, the, trailer. the trailer. So let's watch it. We'll talk later. Yes. Okay. Hey, Gerald, I'm here. Gerald. Your friend appears to have been dead for at least 24 hours. Would you believe that this is the fourth time I've discovered a dead body? Is there anything else you can tell me that's pertinent? I am an expert in the world of cinema memorabilia. I'll be the one to assess my uncle's estate. Old copies of TV Guide? It's a sickness! Your uncle is more of a hoarder than a collector. London After Midnight is the holy grail of lost films. Jimmy, are you all right? This reel of film could very well be your death warrant. Can we watch it? Are you insane? There are people out there who would gladly slit your throat to possess 10 minutes of London after midnight. It's at the top of my list of lost films that I would, without conscience, kill to see. Jimmy Nichols! Jimmy, I believe those vampires are calling Don't pay attention to them. Jimmy! Just take a run for it! You cannot escape us! You have it! You have it! You have it! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! The film has to be sold and out of our hands as swiftly as possible. Congratulations on the cinematic find of the century. Are you free for dinner tomorrow night? It's gone. I can't believe you told him everything. You are a vile, despicable human being. To protect this film, I would sleep with a lot worse than you. The Museum of Modern Art is meeting me here tomorrow to personally pick up the movie. Helen and I have devised a foolproof plan. We shall strive to keep this as simple and undramatic as possible. We're looking for Jimmy Nichols. Don't know him. Never met him. Check. Bring the package downstairs. Check. Hello. Jeff Max, take that from me. Jimmy. Shouldn't we be going up 8th Avenue? We will be taking you to a different destination. Somebody please tell me what is going on. The film must be destroyed. No! Rumble into dust. I think the four of you have seen too many movies. Shut your hole. The story begins in the 1960s. Oh, must we go back to the 60s? I'm on a diuretic. Shut your hole, Doris. I'm into it. (laughs) (laughs) So when was that filmed? Oh my God! It was, uh, I guess, a year ago, last October, and we were among the very first TV or film projects shot um, during the pandemic. It was before there was a vaccine, and and it, it was it was nuts. I mean, we had such severe, <laughs> strict protocols. But I have to tell you, we had probably met about eighty people involved in this movie, you know, crew and everything. Not one person got sick. You know, we wanted to kill our COVID policemen. But yeah, you know, but he did his job. 
And uh, yeah, no, and we had wonderful cast, uh, and we had a lot of a lot of uh, Broadway people who would not have been available because they're yeah. they would have been their shows. We had like you know half the cast of Hades Town. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what's the progress of the film? Where is it now, and uh, what, where is it? Well, we were we were on the you know film festival circuit, and we you know we were at New Fest and Outfest and all the fests, and I think I think this weekend is it the Sydney LGBT Gay Festival in Australia, um, and we have a distributor, and it'll be uh, it'll be out uh, commercially. Uh, I'm, I think in June. It'll be, you know, the usual theatrical and streaming. Anyway, I'm awful excited about it. Yeah, so now we're oh, Carl and I are trying to come up. We have a new idea for another movie and that we've written, and uh, hope hope to get that done soon too. In a um, um, earlier in our conversation, you talked about uh, the influence that Charles Ludlum had on you, uh, creatively, create, creative wise. Um, I'm sure you get the same type of response from other people who say. I look at you, you inspire me. Um, what, what's that like? Oh, lovely. It's, it's lovely. And, um, you know, we, I think, I guess probably every creative person goes through periods where we're, you know, of discontent and, oh, you know, I, I, I went through kind of a bit of a late, late midlife crisis, uh, about six years ago, seven years ago. And, um, you know, just where it seemed like looking back at everything I'd written didn't seem good enough. And I thought, is that, is that all there is? And is this as good as I'm going to be? And it doesn't seem good enough. And just, that, I guess in every field, a lot of people go, th- go through that at some point in their life. And, and what, what helped me get out of it actually was, was the feedback from people that, that I mattered, that, that maybe, you know, I, I had been, a role model, or I don't know, role model, so I forgive you, inspiration, or whatever, you know, and and yeah, and it comes from the odd quarters too. Um, I was so shocked when um, I read an interview with uh, Jim Parsons, you know, that wonderful actor, and who said that what changed his life was a production college of Psycho Beach Party that he was in, that he thought as a gay, as a young gay actor, that he would never be cast or there'd be no future for him. And being in that play loosened him up in a way that, you know, it was meant a lot. And, and I think a lot, a lot of evidently um, drag, RuPaul drag race people like Bianca Del Rio and, you know, the first time they ever were in drag were in a, you know, amateur pro- local production of one of my plays. And so, I, I, you know, it's a wonderful feeling. I, I'm glad you brought up the um, uh, Bianca Del Rio and some of the RuPaul girls. Um, I had several on the show. What do you think of that style of drag compared to what you first did 35, 40 years ago? Well, I, I'm a big fan. You know, I, I, I watch it every season. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's just, you know, by the, by the nature of, of a competition show, you have to kind of narrow it down to an even playing field. So it, it kind of has to be people who, who can lip sync and, you know, uh, and have a, a definite persona and a look. I mean, that's that's the nature of the of the game. So um, so you know. So with that in mind, because drag has endless endless possibilities. It's a creative um, form. You know. So what I do is different from this or this or this or this. You know. 
and all, all valid. So, but on, on that show, I do think it has to be a bit of a narrower playing field because like I, I, I'm the world's worst lip syncer. I mean, a lot, you know, I'd be kicked off like <laughs> on the first commercial break. No, I'm mean, just terrible. Even in Die, Mommy, Die in the movie, um, I had to do a, a pre-record the song. And, uh, well, no, well, no, I know, no, it was Ruth, Ruth Williamson sings the song. I had to sing to a track, you know, like we do in, in movies. And, uh, oh, terrible. You know, I'm, I'm slightly off and people say to me, oh, it's, it's so, I love in the movie how you're just it, intentionally slightly off. It's not intentional, I'm just bad at it. <laughs> no. but, you know, okay, I'm, Charles, you've, you said you've got, a, a, you're writing a, a new movie. Um, you're writing your book. Um, what else do you have in the pipeline? What's in the future? That's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> not for you. <laughs> I've got, I'm working on a play. I'm uh, working on a movie. And it, well, my book is sort of done, although I guess not done until, you know, it's published. But uh, yeah, that's basically it. I'd say I think that, that's enough. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, Charles, I can't tell you enough how pleasurable this has been, how inspiring you are to not only people like me, but people, young gay boys all over America. So uh, thank you so much for your life's work. And I look forward to another 20, 30 years from you. So thank well, you so much. Well, it's been delightful spending time with you. My God, we're, this is like one of my longest relationships. We've been <laughs> so long. <laughs> Let's continue. Thank you so much, Charles. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single episode. And remember that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast. You can use our Venmo at RJD Pro, or you can visit us at AmberLive.tv and look for the Support Amber Live button. And I've enjoyed tonight's show. I've enjoyed sharing it with you. Thank you so much for being a part of it. We'll be back live next week. See you then. Bye-bye. Live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber with two drinks in her hand. The matriarch of fashion, secret sewer glasses, you can't look away. Ask her, does she do it? really nothing to it. She's got that fan on it, If you have a party, or if you're feeling naughty, call up the house of the maid. Here comes your favorite gal. Here comes your queen. Here comes the talk of the town. Playing, it's time for cabareting on Amber Live tonight.